Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. If you have a question, you can write the word question down and then write out your question in the comment section and reread it. Make sure it's saying what you want it to say, and then we'll be able to get to your questions. Our first question today has to do with concessions as to whether or not God made them in the law. When God was writing the law, was he writing a perfect moral code? And by any means, by saying that there's concessions in it, it's not saying that God's law isn't good or God's law wasn't perfect. But the question is, was it perfect for that time or was it perfect for all time? And I got to think that if God were writing a law that he wanted man to live under that would cover right now, it would look different than the law that we have in the Old Testament. Because the law was written to a certain specific people who were chosen by God to do certain specific things. And we had gotten a question last week from Brooklyn. Uh, He had asked about Deuteronomy 21. Uh, female captives that someone in Israel, now remember, and female captives, let's just talk about captives for a minute. So the children of Israel are raised up by God, kept in Israel for 400 years, while the, the Canaanites have the possibility of repenting, but they don't repent, and they keep doing evils including passing their children through fire. And if you want to know more about what those evils are and some disturbing reading, then you can go to uh, do, uh, to Leviticus 18. And so remember, Deuteronomy means the second law. So these are the people that were going to go into the promised land. And they were going to bring judgment for God. And they were going to be established as a nation that was going to bless all nations. But during this time, under Joshua, because Moses would not lead them into the promised land, but under Joshua, they would go in and be God's hand of judgment. Just like when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he used fire and brimstone. When God uh, took judgment on the Canaanites, he used Israel. Some of them were driven from the land. Some of them were killed. And here it talks about female captives. And I want to put this up on the screen for you because I want you to be able to see this. Um, So this is what we talked about last week. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive. So this is totally different than today, right? We're talking 3,000 years ago plus. We're talking about uh, a a war culture where people warred against their neighbors. Uh, We're talking about God using Israel for a very different reason than he's using the church today. The church today is at the end of of God's blessing all nations. God was going to raise up Israel. Through them was going to come a Messiah, the suffering servant, who was going to bless all nations. And then that was going to establish a church who would then go out into all nations And today, there's some 2 billion Christians. I'm not saying they're all believers, true believers, but there's some 2 billion Christians on the face of the earth. It has certainly been fulfilled what the Old Testament said, that through Abraham's seed, that's the Messiah, uh, that the all of Israel is uh, is going to end up blessing all nations. And now we're in that. And so when you read the New Testament, as far as what we are supposed to do, We are never commanded to go out and to bring judgment on someone. That's God's thing now. 
God was using Israel to establish them in Canaan by bringing judgment against the Canaanites for all the evil they had done. So then we read here, when you go out against your enemies and the Lord God delivers them into your hands and you take captives and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would take her as wife, then you shall bring her into your home and your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails and shall put off the clothes of her captivity remain in your house and mourn her father, her mother, a month after that, you may go into her and be your husband and she will be your wife. Well, let's pause there for just a moment. And this is why I said last week, Craig Keener did a great job in showing what the cultures around the Middle East in 3,000 years ago did to captives. And that this is mercy towards women that have had their husbands killed in battle or their parents killed in battle and they really have no place to go. But other cultures around them would treat these women with shame and contempt and abuse. But God told Israel, if you want to marry her, you've got to bring her into your house. You have to allow her time to mourn and then you have to marry her. You, you just can't take her as a servant. It goes on to say here then, and it shall be if you have no delight in her and you shall set her free, but you um, certainly shall not sell her for money. Uh, you shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Now, there's two ideas with this humbling her. Uh, one is that, that she shaved her head and her nails, and now you don't want to be married to her. And remember, Moses gave... Israel a command in the law that they could divorce their wives. But Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses did that. It was not God's plan from the beginning for there to be divorce at all. So in this one statement, we find two concessions. Number one, it's not a perfect world to have captives. And you've got to learn how to deal with captives. And so God had to give them some instruction so they wouldn't end up mistreating the captives. And this is what I said last week. This is mercy towards these women that don't have anyone to care for them, whose, whose family have been killed, and they are, they are in a, a undesirable situation to be sure. But this is a way that they can be taken care of and have a husband, hopefully, who was loving, who doesn't do all the things that the Canaanites did. And the Canaanite lifestyle, like I said, was particularly brutal. These women would have been rescued from the brutality of what was going on within the Canaanite system. Again, read Leviticus 18. So my first question today, which is, are there concessions in the law? And this is the follow-up that Brooklyn gave last week. So Brooklyn brought up this question, I answered it, and then he said follow-up. Thanks, Pastor. Um, uh, it's a cultural, it's culture, but God does speak here. Does God change his law depending on the culture? Or is it the same today, yesterday, and forever? God seems to bend to culture here. And I would, I would, and first of all, I want to say, Brooklyn, I appreciate you. A little bit later on, you say that you didn't get this question from a website, and I believe you. Um, there's are websites out there that are atheist websites that bring up a lot of questions about God, 
and I'm willing to cover them. I'm willing to cover all of them, okay? So that's that's not a problem. Um, but I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your desire. I mean, I appreciate your heart. I appreciate the respect that you're here with, and, and I want to give not only you, but anyone that comes on that same kind of respect, um, and I appreciate it. So, okay, so you say, is the law of God, and, and let me read this again, follow up, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll break it down as I read it. Um, follow up, thanks, Pastor. It, is, it the cult, is it the culture um, God does speak to here? Um, is it culture, but God does speak here? Does God change his law depending on the culture? Or is he the same today, yesterday, and forever? So now you ask two questions in that. One about the law. Does God change his law according to culture? The answer to that is yes. God gave them a concession of a king. God didn't want them to have a king, but he knew that they would demand a king and they were living in a culture where there was kings. And so God gave them that concession. So he did change his law according to culture. He was dealing with people where they were. Um, we, we read these questions from our point of view in the Western world, where we are today, and can't possibly imagine what life was like back in those days. So when you get it back into context, you see that God gave them a law to deal with situations they were dealing with then. And so the law in the Old Testament was definitely one, if you wanna say it, that bent to culture, or that God gave a concession because of how their culture was going. Now, your second question, Brooklyn, was, um, or is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? Now, that's a yes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and will always be. But the way he's dealt with men in different times and different cultures depends on the setting, because nothing's black and white. There is nuance in everything. And it's one of the things that happens, it's one of the things that happens, quite frankly, in religion, Brooklyn, is that when people become really radicalized, then they, they turn black and white. Everything's black and white. And there's, there's no nuance. You can't look at life in a nuanced way and try to figure things out. And God is not like that. And the Word of God is not like that. The Word of God is full of nuance. And that's why sometimes, like when we talked about last week, marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the Christian, there's a lot of nuance in that. And so you've got to work through a lot and you can't give a quick, you know, when someone asks a question, I've been divorced uh, for three years now, can I remarry? You can't answer that because there's so much nuance. So yes, he's the same yesterday and day and forever. He's loving, he's compassionate. And I believe that he was showing compassion and love towards these women who had lost their families when he allowed them to be married and to have a husband. Otherwise, where would they go and what would they do? Remember, the Canaanites were being driven out of the land. They were being killed in battle. They were being judged by God. And so what were these women going to do? Where were they going to go? And what were they going to do? Uh, they, they lived in a particularly brutal culture. All right? So the answer is, yes, God did make concessions under the law. God did respond to how their culture was. And there's a lot more things that you can read in the law, but as you're reading it, you realize this is because of their culture. We don't have that today. Or it doesn't answer a question that we have today because the law was given to Israel for a certain specific set amount of time. Jesus would come along and complete the law. 
so that we are no longer under it. We don't have a high priest today because Jesus is our high priest. We don't have sacrifices today because Jesus became our sacrifice. We don't, we don't keep the Sabbath on Saturday today or on Sunday for that matter. We, um, you can keep a Sabbath if you want to. You can keep it on Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, whatever you want to do, but we don't do it because Jesus became our Sabbath. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. Moses opened the Oh, Moses opened the book on the law and Jesus completed it and closed it so that we are not under the law today because the law was for that specific time. And a lot of the things that the law would talk about wouldn't apply today because it was written to his culture. So Brooklyn, I hope that answers your question and I'm willing uh, to do a follow-up on it. All right. Um, and, uh, uh, Yes, Jesus is the same yesterday and forever. And as I said, I really appreciate your tone here as someone who is, I think you said agnostic atheist, which would be someone who has searched to see if there is God and not found enough evidence for there to be God. Um, so that's what I, say, I think a definition of an agnostic atheist is. Brooklyn, let me know if I've got that wrong. Make sure to put a question though in front of it um, because I will not see it. I, I might not see it if that's the case. All right, so um, good to see you guys here. Good to have you uh, at our Q&A. Uh, we have a question from Psych Man, and Psych Man, good to see you. Um, Jesus said, first gather the tares and, the, and burn them, Matthew 13, 30. But we know that the dead in Christ rise first, 1 Thessalonians 14, 6. There must be a different gathering, thanks. Hope you, your weekend was kicking. Uh, thank you, um, Psych Man, I appreciate that. I had a birthday on Friday and had family over, and it was good. Um, so, separating the tares and the wheat, separating the goats and the sheep, um, the way that it happens is not just gathering everybody together in one group and then separating them. There's the tares, there's the wheat. No, nope, everybody together, there's the, there's the goats. But it's through a process that happens over a period of time. There is a resurrection. Everybody, everybody believes in a resurrection. Everybody who is a genuine Christian does. If someone, psych man, denies the resurrection, then they have, they have moved out of the realm of what we would call orthodoxy. Or we would say that they are now believing something that is aberrant. There's all kinds of teachings within Christianity that we can have the right hand of fellowship with, that we can get along with each other. There are differences that we have. I've said before, hey, look, I don't, I, I, as, even as a pastor, my goal isn't to persuade anybody to believe like what I believe. My goal is to find the truth in the word of God to present that. And if someone disagrees with me, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, and so everybody believes in the rapture. And when the rapture happens, those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and be forever with the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 4. Also, in um, 1 Corinthians 15, we're not all going to sleep, but it talks about a resurrection there too. So, the, the rapture, which is criticized often, is, and I don't like the word rapture, and I think you might probably know that, it's a smaller event in a larger event. So, the larger event is the resurrection, and what's happening to these people in the rapture is a resurrection except that they're being resurrected alive. And they're, they're, the corruptible is put on incorruptible, the mortal is put on immortality. Now, wherever that happens, 
let's just, where, wherever the resurrection happens, and then there's a separating of the, the, the goats and the sheep. There's a judgment that happens after that. So there's a resurrection. It's called the first resurrection at the end of the tribulation period, which is one of the arguments that people use for post-tribulation because there's a resurrection at the end of the tribulation for post-tribulation, for post-rapture tribulation. There's a resurrection at the end of the tribulation period and it says this is the first resurrection. And so they say, well, no one could have been resurrected before that so you couldn't have had the rapture anywhere else before that. But I believe that the first resurrection is, took, is made up in stages, that there is Jesus resurrecting from the dead, the, the resurrection rapture, and then the rapture of those who have died during the tribulation period who are Christians. After that, then there is a, a, re a resurrection of all of the souls of the ungodly. And it's said that they are resurrected unto an eternal death. Now, we're going to get all of this in the book of Revelation as we continue to make our way through the book. And so, the separation of the tares and the wheat and the sheep and the goats doesn't happen by a bunch of people getting together. Like God saying, okay, it's all done. Let's all get together. Now, we're going to separate the sheep and the goats. Though Those are, well, parables, right? Tares and, and wheat, the sheep and the goats. They're not really sheep and goats. They are godly and ungodly. They're not really tares and wheats. They're godly and ungodly. And so he's using a parable to talk about their separation. And that's eventually what happens. But the way that it is played out is radically different than gathering everybody together. He will, he will resurrect the saints that are alive and then resurrect those who are going to be condemned. Another way we could look at this is when you look at the book of Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 12, which is one of the first places you'll find the resurrection. And hey, look, I was... Um, I've heard people say often, well, not often, I've heard people say that you can't find any resurrection in the Old Testament or any life after death in the Old Testament. In fact, I was reading Bart Ehrman's book on hell, heaven and hell, and he made the statement that they didn't have a concept of eternity in the Old Testament. They didn't have a concept of heaven or hell in the Old Testament. And that's just not true. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, talked about having our uh, seeing his, he knew that his Redeemer lived and he would stand with him one day on the earth. And so here in Daniel chapter 12, it says, 12.1, um, I'm going to put this up on the screen for you again. So in 12.1, in it says, um, at this time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. This is the very end. And it seems like Michael is the prince over Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since never there was a nation. Even to this time, at the end of time, um, your people shall be delivered. So that's the tribulation period. And it's the time that's worse than anything, but Israel's going to be saved out of it, as it says in Jeremiah 37. It is uh, the day of the Lord is awesome and it, uh, is, is great or terrible, really, uh, is the word. The day of the Lord is, is, is terrible and Israel will be saved out of it. It is a day of Jacob's trouble, and they will be saved out of it. And so here it says, your people shall be delivered at this time that is worse than any other thing that happens on the earth. And then it says this, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise and awake, some to everlasting life and some, and some to shame, and, and to everlasting contempt. So some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So when you read that in the book of Daniel, it looks like these are back to back. It looks like it's the same day. Everybody rises from the dead 
But we know as we continue on in the book of Revelation that there are differences and Corinthians and the first Thessalonians. We know that there are differences in the way that this comes about. All right. So hopefully that answers your question, Psych Man. Uh, you can give me a follow-up if you would like to. Uh, let's go ahead and start taking questions here. All right. Uh, good to see you guys. Carl, good to see you here. Um, Keith, I appreciate you. Appreciate you being here, uh, moderating. Thank you very much for doing that. Uh, we have a question from Rod. And um, yeah, this is, a, this is a good question. Why are the 12 tribes in Revelation different than in Genesis? So this is um, Revelation chapter 6, if I'm remembering correctly. And I want to go there because I want to read the tribes that are mentioned here. Um, so, uh, is it... Um, uh, let, me, let me see. Um, maybe it's actually Revelation 7. Yes, it's Revelation 7. Alright, so these are the 144,000 Jews and I think they're literal Jews, from 12 tribes of Israel. And their, their tribes are mentioned. And I want you to put the tribes up here and take a look at them. It says, um, and this is going to give all tw these 12 tribes, uh, of the tribe of Judah, that's the same as the Old Testament. Of the tribe of Reuben, same as the Old Testament. Of the tribe of Gad, same as the Old Testament. Of the tribe of Asher, same thing. Naphtali, same thing. Manasseh, ooh, now, okay, same thing. But remember, Manasseh is a son of Joseph. And, and Joseph had, and Jacob had 12 sons. And so now Manasseh is being named as one of the sons. And then it says of the tribe of Simeon, same as the Old Testament. Um, Levi, one of the sons. Uh, Ishkar, one of the sons. Zebulun, one of the sons. Joseph, one of the sons. But now you've had Manasseh and Joseph mentioned. So you have two tribes that are mentioned, one Joseph, which I don't know that you ever find the tribe of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph's tribe is made up, he gets a double portion, remember? That's what, what, um, uh, that's what he, was, he was given, a double portion. And the double portion that he was given um, is that he had Ephraim and Manasseh. So then it goes on to say Benjamin, and, and that's it. Now, two tribes are left out, Ephraim and Dan. Now, Joseph seems to have taken the place of Ephraim because Manasseh is mentioned up above and Ephraim is his other child, but Dan is left out. If Again, I talked about horrible reading in Leviticus, Leviticus 18, when you read about what the Canaan, God says, don't do the things the Canaanites did, and he lists the things the Canaanites did, and it's pretty horrible. Um, so go to the end of the book of Judges and read what the tribe of Dan did. They were given land by the coast and for whatever reason they didn't want it and they went and they took the city of Lachish I think they killed the people who were there this is just murder this is just them going and taking land for themselves because they want it and they took the land and you read of the things that Dan did in the end of the book of of um in the end of the book of Judges I just say the first last five chapters they're horrible. When you're going through the book of Judges and, and you get to those last five chapters, like, okay, hang on, because here we go. There's some wild things that happen in, in the end of the book of Judges. But one of them is, is atrocities by Dan. And so Dan seems to have been left off because they didn't receive the land God gave them. They took the land of Lachish. They allowed uh, Jeroboam 
to set up one of his his um, idols there. Remember, he had two uh, bowl or two. Um, it says it calls them the sin of Jeroboam, and he had two golden calves that he set up, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Think about Jeroboam. Jeroboam lived a, a generation after. Uh, or as a contemporary of Solomon. Then Solomon died and Jeroboam took over Israel and Rehoboam, his son, Samuel's son, took over um, the, the kingdom of Judah. And you can go to, to Dan, Tel Dan today. Tel Dan, a tell is a hill that has a city underneath it. So you can go to Tel Dan that has the city of Dan or Lachish. They have a, um, a, a gate there from the days of Abraham and they have the altar from the days of Jeroboam, that the Bible talks about, the Bible actually talks about um, both of those things. So that's why God, that's why God didn't mention Dan. That's why I think God didn't mention Dan. Now, it does never say, but when you go back and you study the tribe of Dan, you see the things that they did, and you see them left out, you kind of go, hmm, okay, I understand why God left them out. Because they rejected the land God gave them. They went and they took the land somebody else gave them. And so God left them out in the book of Revelation. Um, And Joseph gets a double portion and the person that's left out is Dan. Um, Another interesting thing about the tribes is you have Simeon and Levi. And remember, they killed the men of the city of Shechem. And Joseph uh, and in let me let me go see if I can go there in uh, Genesis chapter fifty. You have you have Israel blessing his sons, and when he gets to let me see if I can find this. So maybe maybe it's forty nine. I think it's forty nine. Hold on, let me just go back to let's see if it's forty nine here. Oops. You know, this goes bad when you're in a hurry. So let me see if this is it. Um, the sons of Jacob, listen to your father. Okay, yeah, so I'm just going to put this up here instead of just kind of like going through it and trying to find it. You'll see what I'm doing, and we'll see if we can find them talking about Simeon and Levi. Reuben, he talks about, um, and then as he continues on, uh, he goes on to Simeon. All right, he went up to, um, so he talks about, uh, let's see, Simeon and Levi are brothers. So they were they were two sons of the same wife. Remember, Jacob had four, two wives, two concubines, one for Leah, one for, for Rachel, and he ended up having 12 children. And people will say, well, that's polygamy in the Bible. Yes, it is. And if you want to know how horrible it is, go study the life of Jacob because Jacob's life was miserable. And it was because he had, in, in part, all of these different wives. And you can just go see it. And there was a contention between them and this competition to have as many kids. That's why he ended up with 12 of them. And how God uses all of that is amazing. So Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council and let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So he says, I'm not going to give them land. So Simeon was assimilated into Judah. So when you look at a lot of maps, you don't find the tribe of Simeon. 
You might find where they started, but they were assimilated by Judah. Judah was the biggest of all of the tribes. But think of, think of Levi. This is what this is, Simeon and Levi. Think about how God brought this about. He is telling them that they're going to be divided in the land, and God chooses Levi to be the tribe that would take care of the tabernacle, the temple, and the priests. That even through this prophecy, God ends up blessing the tribe of Levi and allows them to be the ones who would take care of the tabernacle and be, and be close to God in taking care of the things of God. So it's absolutely amazing. So anyway, um, how I got on that from um, Rod's question about, well, I know how I got there. Um, I, I understand. So we have a question from Brendan. Brendan says, um, eh, what are your thoughts on Paul Washer's preaching? Um, all right. Let me just collect my thoughts on how I want to say this. I don't like putting down other pastors. Then that might tell you what I'm thinking about Paul Washer. Um, Paul Washer is a Calvinist. Uh, he is, I believe, in the extreme form of a Calvinist. And uh, I, I don't know all of his doctrines, but I believe that he believes in determinism. Um, he's right there with R.C. Sprawl and John MacArthur in the extremes of what they're teaching. And Paul Washer has been, um, what's the right word that I want to use for it? Um, a lot of his teaching to me is like Gomer Pyle, shame on you. It's, it's a, a shame, shame, shame rather than an encouragement. And there's a time, I think, to, to say, look, this needs to change. You guys have been doing this and it's bad. But, you know, Paul Washer's one who's famous for when he's chewing out the church, he's going after the church, and people start applauding, and he says, I don't know why you're applauding, I'm talking to you. So he just kind of comes back at them as if there was none of them there that could feel the way that he feels. That just rubs me a little wrong. Um, I don't see, I, I, he's a brother in Christ. Uh, he's a fellow pastor and teacher. And um, I hesitate to really get massively critical, even though I guess I just was as I talked about him. Um, so I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't listen a lot to Paul Washer every once in a while. I'll, I'll catch something that he does. But um, I, to be honest with you, I don't listen to a lot of Calvinists. I do listen to them. I listen to John MacArthur. I want to be careful not to get stuck in an echo chamber, and I think all of us should. If all we're doing is listening to other people that have our position, a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to be more and more convinced that your way is right when indeed it may be wrong. Number two, you don't know how to defend your position because you don't know what people are saying. So I, I do listen to um, those that are Calvinists, even though, uh, and I, they're brothers in the Christ. They're, they're, they, they, they know the Lord. Okay, I'm not saying every Calvinist knows the Lord, but I'm saying that, you know, you can be a Calvinist, you can believe in determinism, um, and and, and, and be saved and love the Lord. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just simply saying that's not who I am and it's not what I believe the Bible teaches. And um, so um, I think that that may make up some of the differences that I would have with Paul Washer. Plus, I think 
hey, there needs to be, you know, there needs to be some encouragement. Look, if you're going to tear people down, then, then, then lift them up. Give them an opportunity to be able to grasp onto something that would lift them up. And sorry if you're a Paul Washer fan. I don't want to tear him down in your eyes. If you're being, if you're being ministered to by him, look, I know he loves the Lord. He's got a gift. Okay, God uses him. So we'll we'll leave it at that. Question: The kings of the East and China and India are they eventually rebel against the Antichrist? Which uh, watched a movie called uh, Megiddo of Omega Code, and it shows them rebelling. Thoughts? Yeah, so one of the reasons for our Q&A is it is an extension of the teaching ministry at Calvary. So if you're watching our sermons, our studies, if you're watching our, our, our hot topics, the shorter form that we have, uh, if, um, if you're listening to the radio or you've got our app or you have um, the pod, you're listening to the podcast, um, TruthQuest podcast, and you have questions to ask them. So this is what we taught on last Wednesday night. We taught on the preparation for Armageddon. And we spoke of a couple of things. That Armageddon, first of all, is not a valley. Megiddo is a tell. I told you about Tel Dan earlier, which is a city under dirt a mound. Well, Megiddo is, is, I don't know how many generations, 20, 30 generations of, not generations, but 30, or 20 to 30 cities built on top of each other. You have a city from Ahab's time, and then it was destroyed, and you have a city from Solomon's time that had been destroyed. So, I mean, there's all of these cities, and that's Megiddo. And Armageddon is the valley, is on by the Valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley. And it's the gathering point for the armies of the Antichrist to fight against the armies of the East. And at the end of Revelation 16, the last two bowls that are poured out, we see this preparation beginning to happen. And then, and we're going to go forward in this in the book of Revelation, but then Jesus will return at the final battle. But the battle of Armageddon doesn't take place in the Valley of Jezreel or by the mountain of Megiddo. It actually takes place in the, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is closer to Jerusalem, and even talks about the Kidron Valley. And if you want more information on that, Jari, go, go to Zechariah 14 and read about the battle there. All right? So I think that that will be helpful. I appreciate you, Jari. Good to see you. Thank you for your question. And good to have you guys joining us today. Um, if you're visiting or you're here for the first time, you're wondering how to get a question down here, put it in the comment section. Best to put it in as early as you can because we we aren't we don't get to all the questions. And I do look at questions that have, we didn't get to to look for first questions for the next uh, for our next Q&A. So make sure to check in if you don't get yours answered this week uh, to a future Q&A and see whether or not um, we, we answer it. But write the word question or, Q or question mark in front of your question, then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense, and then add any Bible references that we may take time to look up and read together because a lot of times the answer is in the context. So um, LA91, good to have you here, LA91. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 13, conditional security, eternal security, um, Deny isn't this equal not faithful or is it talking about something else? All right, let's just go there and read it. Let me see if I can get that worked out. I had a little trouble figuring out your question last week and I think I'm going to have a little bit of trouble figuring it out this week too, although you did give me a reference. So maybe I could take a look at that. So conditional security and eternal security. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to define those terms for you. And if I'm giving the wrong terms, because I don't use, I use 
eternal security, but I don't use conditional security. So let me see if I can define these terms for you. But first, I'm going to go 2 Timothy 2, and I'm going to go to verse uh, 11. And before we get there, let's talk about these two different positions. So eternal security is that once you have made a genuine commitment to Christ, and you have really been saved, that you are now not going to walk away. You're not going to turn your back on Christ. And if you do walk away and turn your back on Christ, he's going to go get you and bring you back because you're his. That's the eternal security position. A conditional security would be the idea that you could leave your salvation, you could lose your salvation, uh, that you could walk away from it. Now, I don't take, I lean towards eternal security, and that's kind of new for me to say that within the last two years. Um, but I don't really take a, I don't take a stand on, on, on conditional security or eternal security. And here's why. I think it's a, it's a mute question that was never really dealt with in scripture. Because if someone walks away from God, they're in need of God. If someone becomes, let's just go to an extreme. I know it's an extreme, but sometimes the extreme can make a point. Let's just say that someone um, walks away from God and becomes uh, an atheist. I think of Billy Graham's associate who was with Billy Graham for a long time. He became an atheist. So now they become a God. They just don't believe that there's a God that's out there. Nobody in the conditional security or eternal security would say he's saved. The eternal security would say he was never saved or he wouldn't have left us. The conditional security would say, well, he walked away. He's in need of repentance and coming back. And, and, and so the, the person needs to be saved. Now, what if someone falls away? I walked away from the Lord for a year. Was saved, genuinely saved at 14, walked away at 18, but God came and got me at 19. Brought me back to him. I was away from him for a year. And I have that in my life. And it's, it's a dramatic story about how God came and got me. But God did come and get me. And um, I know that I am, I'm saved. I know that I'm saved because I want to do his will. And if you love him, you want to do his will. By this we know that we know him. If we want to keep his commandments. So if you say, well, I love God, but I don't want to keep his commandments. Well, then what security do you really have? Because a real genuine Christian wants to keep the commandments. They're reading the word of God because they know that that's life. That's like pure gold. And I'm going to find out what God's word says. I'm going to be able to do what God tells me to do. So that's my, that's my take on conditional security and eternal security. Um, I, I think it's a mute question. I generally don't argue it because I don't think that it really, I, I don't think it's, uh, it matters. Because if the person has walked away from God, then they are, they are, you know, suspect. You know, maybe God will go get them. Maybe, maybe they went out because they weren't of them, but we just don't know. So eternal security is not anything that we need to argue because everybody's treating them the same way. The person that, that used to be a Christian that's now an atheist, everybody's treating them the same way. They either left their salvation or they were never a Christian. All right? So here I'm going to read your text to see if we can figure this out. Um, Teach conditional security or eternal security. All right, so this is what it says, and you give 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, we will also he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
So yeah, that um, second verse, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Um, going back up to the very top, um, this is a faithful saying, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. So this is a passage that says that if you endure to the end, you shall be saved. So I can see where someone who taught conditional security would read this and go, well, that's conditional security all the way through and through. It certainly would not be one you would cite for, etern for, um, for uh, eternal security, right? You wouldn't say, now listen, we, once we're saved, we're always saved. Let me show you this. It says, this is a faithful saying, if we die in him, we shall also live in him. Okay, well, that's good. We died in him. We were walking with him. We'll live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. So we got to endure. But wait a minute. We got to endure. Um, okay, but if you are really saved, you're going to endure. So that's how they would say that. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And that, they would say, would not be salvation, but that would be the blessings or God using you or fellowship, that your fellowship with God would be broken. If we are faithless, then he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so that's the one that they would come back and say, he's faithful. He's going to remain faithful and you're going to be saved. The Bible does talk about those who are saved as only through fire. So I'm sorry to give you such a, a complicated answer, but you can see that I, I come across passages that, that are very much like this. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, this could be reading, if we are faithless, so we walk away from him, he'll remain faithful. He's not going to become faithless, but will he deny us? Will we not be saved? Is it saying that it's going to be faithful in our salvation? And that I don't know. I read passages like this. I read passages in uh, Galatians, especially a lot of them in Galatians, where it looks like, look, if you don't continue on, then you're not saved. And really, here's the truth. You do continue on. If you're, even if you believe in eternal security, you believe that person is going to continue on. And even if they walk away, they're going to come back and then they're going to continue on. So it becomes a very complicated argument that I end up reasoning in circles and why why I've come to the place where I go, it doesn't matter. And I don't argue it. Um, I lean towards eternal security. If you really and genuinely are saved, even if you walk away, God's going to come get you and bring you back. That's the way I lean. Could I be wrong? Sure. Right? I could be wrong about anything. Right? Well, maybe not anything, but I could be wrong about a lot of things. All right. So I, I appreciate you, LA. Thank you very much for being here. And um, let me just go ahead and see what uh, what our next question is. Um, all right. So we have a question from Melissa. Melissa says, question, after all the controversy with Hillsong, do you think we should still support buying their music? Hmm. Okay. Um, let me answer this in this way. Uh... We have directed our worship groups to use, at, at best, a very minimum of Hillsong songs. Here's the, here's the problem that arises. So Hillsong and also Bethel, which both have theological problems, both have, Hillsong has had credibility issues. Um, Bethel has credibility issues with his doctrines. 
and and a lot of song, a lot, a lot of churches around the nation are singing Bethel and Hillsong stuff, and it gives them some credibility, even though they lack credibility in a lot of different ways. And if you want to know more about that, I'm not going to talk about it, but you can go and you can watch um, the different documentaries that are out there on Hillsong and Bethel. They're both out there, um, and you'll be able to pick them up. But Bethel does definitely have some very problematic doctrines. Hillsong has some problematic doctrines as well, but they have problematic activity. Um, but the, the problem is, is that Bethel and Hillsong have such a strong music ministry that they buy up other songs. So they buy up songs that have been written by other people that we used to access, and when it would flash up on our screen, it would say someone else. But now it says Bethel or it says Hillsong. And according to copyright laws, you have to display who the songs are written by when the, the song is being sung in a church service. We have to declare the, the songs that we sing. I'm not exactly sure how it all works, but I do know that we have to answer for copyrights for the things that we play. And it's one of the reasons that we can play music over Facebook, or we can play our music from the church over Facebook because we pay for it and because we give credit to where credit is due by putting up on the screen where they're from. So Bethel will be up there, but the song was written by Bethel. Hillsong will be up there, but the song wasn't written by, by Hillsong. So that becomes a problem. Now, should you go out and buy Bethel and Hillsong music? We also have a radio station. And at our radio station, uh, we play music and we have teaching. It's a teaching station that plays music. It's FM station. Um, you could download the app for it, Reach Radio. Uh, I think it's Reach Radio FM. Put in Robert Furrow in your, um, in your app store. And Truth Quest Podcast will come up. Our church app will come up. And the radio will come up. And the radio can be... Um, Reach, uh, Reach FM can be accessed through the app as well. And you'll be able to listen to the music and the teachings that we have on there. You can look at our teachers. We've got a great list of teachers that are on there. We wanted to, to cover the city of Tucson with good, solid, biblical teaching, and we think we've done that. But we also don't use very much Hillsong or Bethel there. So we're, we're looking to try to see, was it written by Bethel, or did they just buy it and now they have it? Um, but it is problematic. So, should you buy it and support them? I'm going to say it's, it's your conviction. If you were to, to say, I buy Hillsong music, um, do you think I shouldn't? I would say, you know, if you don't have a conviction against it, and you don't think that you're supporting them, or, or you don't mind supporting them, or you think that that's not going to support them significantly, if you buy a, a bit of their music, then Okay. If you have a conviction that you shouldn't listen to it, then don't listen to it because to listen to it would be sin. This is though this is the way a lot of things are that we don't have a particular passage we can go to that says if someone um, is hasn't been doing what's right, don't you know um, purchase any of their stuff. I mean, we just don't have it because it wasn't around in their day, so we just don't have anything like that. So I think that. Um, Romans 14 comes into play, which is not to argue over doubtful things and make a decision yourself on that. And let me go ahead and pull that up for you. Romans 14, 1. I'm going to put that on the screen for you. Um, here it says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, and the other eats only vegetables. 
let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who, who does not eat judge the one who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? So you make these decisions yourself. To his own master he stands and falls. Indeed, he is able to make him stand. For God is able. So God can bring him about to the right decision. Uh, it says one person esteems one day above another. So this is the, the, you know, what day you worship on thing. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So you've got to be fully convinced in your own mind. It's okay for me to listen to this or it's not okay for me to listen to this. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He does not observe the day to the Lord. He does not observe it. He who listens to the Hillsong music worships God with it. And he who doesn't listen to it worships God with something else. It says, he who eats, let him eat to the Lord. For he gives thanks and he does not eat to the Lord. He does not give uh, thanks. For none of us lives or dies to himself, but no one dies um, Let's see, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Okay, so I'll just end that there. But that's kind of where we are with it. Um, I would not condemn you for buying Hillsong stuff. I myself would rather not. Um, would I shut them off if I'm, if I'm, if I'm in another city and I'm driving down the road and Hillsong song comes on, uh, and, you know, and they're kind of like, well, here's the latest Hillsong. I'm not necessarily going to shut them off. And, um, I'm not a boycott kind of a guy anyway. Uh, and so, um, I think there might be other ways to really deal with things that are, that are helpful. All right, so thank you very much, though, uh, Melissa, for your question. I appreciate that. And for us to get a chance to be able to talk about those kind of things. Uh, new Era, good to see you. Good to have you with us. Uh, new Era says, question, baby Christian, new Christian in Christ. Nice. Um, congratulations. What's, uh, what book in the Bible would you recommend to, uh, for them to read first? Oh, maybe you're just asking for baby questions. Um, what first steps would you guide them to? So for those of you who are new baby believers, Welcome. God bless you. Uh, I'm so glad for you. Um, congratulations on getting to know your, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, so I think that the consensus out there, New Era, would be the book of John. I think most people would say that because at the end it says, I write you these things that you may believe that he is the Christ. So I think that's the consensus out there. Uh, when I became a Christian, I started reading Matthew. And I, and I read it until I get, ran into this part where it says that um, I tell you the truth. Not, well, I tell you the truth that not all of, that not everyone here is going to taste death before they see the kingdom of God and its glory. And then, and then I I knew they didn't. I didn't know that Jesus didn't come back while they were alive. And so I stopped reading it, and I got confused. And it took me a little while to get back to it. And the very next thing that I read was eight days later, he took him up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was glorified in front of them and seen in glory and power. And so I realized that's the fulfillment of that. Um, so I had a little bit of trouble with Matthew, um, but I would, yeah, I would definitely stay in the Gospels and maybe the book of John because it's so clear on its Christology, on who Christ is. Not that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't because they are, but John is clearer than Matthew, Mark, and Luke on Christology. And as a baby Christian, you want to learn as much as you can about Jesus uh, being equal to the Father, being God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all of that. You're going you're gonna to want to get as much as you can. You're going to get that best from the book of John. There's a lot of talking about being equal to the Father and the Father, him and the Father being equal. And um, so I, that, that's what I would say. Probably John 
but stay in the Gospels for sure. All right? And, um, and then find yourself a, a good Bible-believing church. Um, study through passages. Underline, question marks, star, um, highlight. Just read through it slowly. Gain as much information as you can. Find out what it's saying. If you need to do further study, then do further study on it. And you'll learn how to do that as a baby Christian. And it's really good to learn how to be able to go and get the answers to the questions that you, you need. All right. So uh, I didn't bring any water in with me. All right. Question. Uh, we have uh, another question from Keeping It Real. And Keeping It Real, good to have you here with us. So Keeping It Real says, um, when it says there are sealed, they are sealed, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. Ah, so um, she's bringing a follow-up question from the 12 tribes, the 144,000 who are sealed by the mark of God in Revelation chapter, where, where were we? Um, Revelation chapter 7? Yes, uh, chapter 7. Uh, so I'm just going to go here. We're going to read some of this here. Keeping it real, okay? Um, after these things... I saw four angels stand at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds that would not blow on the earth, on the sea, and the tree. And just because it says four corners doesn't mean it's a flat earth, okay? It's, it's an idiom. It's an expression. Uh, then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice, the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth, saying, do not harm the earth the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of their God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. 4,000 uh, 4, of all, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Then it goes on giving the tribes that we looked at that were sealed, leaving out the tribe of Dan. And um, then after that, we've got the great multitude uh, that is up in heaven on the glass sea, right? Is that the, the that's the section? Anyway, that's where we get that. Um, so, is this, is this God, is this God sealing them and then the Antichrist copies God? Kind of like Jesus raised from the dead and the Antichrist has a mortal wound that's healed. Satan can't raise from the dead, but there's a mortal wound that's healed. He can play games and tricks and he has certain powers. And so, th it seems like there's a, a counterfeit going on all the way through. So is there an actual mark of God that they are sealed with? Or is this what's said in Ephesians about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit? So you and I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm, I can't remember exactly where that reference is, so I'd go there. Um, are they being sealed with the Holy Spirit? Or is this the mark of God on their foreheads like the copy of the Antichrist? Or is the mark of the beast a copy of us being sealed by the Holy Spirit? And um, I'm sorry, I don't have uh, the answer for you exactly on that. Um, I think it could be the seal of the Holy Spirit. And it might even be a physical mark as well, that they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit because of their distinct, this distinct nature of the 144,000. But just because they're sealed doesn't mean they're sealed with the Holy Spirit, although they would have the Holy Spirit inside of them because they would be, they would be uh, genuine believers. All right, so um, thank you, keeping it real. Um, I try to be very careful not to add, take away, do violence to the scriptures. Um, so uh, I want to uh, I want to be careful as I enter, you know, entertain those thoughts. Sometimes you just get to a point where you go, well, maybe. <laughs> All right, so um, let's see. Um, 
We have a few more minutes here. Renee has a question. Renee, good to see you. Renee says, where did the word, um, where did the word of God discover, where was, where, oh, let me read this again. Where did the word of God discovered originally? Where was the word of God discovered originally? Was it before or after Israel became desolate? Okay, so I have a lot of questions, Renee. Are you talking about the Old Testament? Are you talking about the New Testament? Um, let's just, let me just cover both of them quickly, all right? So, the Old Testament never went away. We have, we have copies of it from the Dead Sea Scrolls before the time of Christ. And we can compare them to the copies that are made afterwards. They had professional scribes that did a very good job of covering them. The, the same books that we have were the accepted books of the canon of, of people who are Jewish. There are other books that other groups received. There are apocryphal books that, that were rejected by them and we reject them. The New Testament canon came about out of the early church and were recognized very early by the early church as being scripture. And even Paul's writings are called scripture in the Bible by Peter. And so, and it did, it wasn't 300 years later um, under the, the uh, Council of Nicaea, under Constantine. The, the 27 books of the New Testament were put together long before that and accepted. Nobody said these are the books. Instead, the church accepted them because they had in them the qualities of what the Word of God was and what the New Testament would be. Um, written by, influenced by the apostles was the main key, who were the eyewitnesses. So, either written by or influenced by the eyewitnesses. That's... Very rarely do I ever sneeze um, when, uh, when I'm teaching, but I did just there. I hope that mute button worked good. All right, otherwise, I hope you guys gave me some God bless you. Um, all right, so if you want to get more specific, Renee, then give me a little bit more about what you're talking about with the Word of God, because you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament, um, you have how the New Testament was preserved, how the Old Testament was preserved. Um, both of them, we are confident that they have been preserved to this day uh, because of the vast number of manuscripts in the New Testament. We have 5,000 Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. And because of the, the quality of those who were doing work on the manuscripts in the Old Testament. All right, we have time for one more question. And if you have a question out here, sorry that I'm not going to get to it. I'll take a look at it. Plus, you're free to come back on, we'll, Lord willing, have one on Wednesday. If you're willing to come back and ask your question, if you can get in a little bit earlier and get it closer to the front, then um, we can be sure to answer it. Um, follow up. This is on New Era. She was talking about what Bible, right? Um, what book in the Bible for a new believer to read. But if we do help the poor, what's the limit on helping the poor? Because we need to support yourselves as well. You cannot um, help everyone that's poor, otherwise you'd be broke. Right. And Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Um, and the answer to that is, let each one consider what he would give in his heart. And don't give because you have to, but give because you want to. So we, we know this because Paul was collecting was collecting a um, was collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he wanted to go to the Corinthians. He wanted them to have their stuff ready to go when he would do that. And so he writes to them and tells them that 
um, how what their heart is when they give should be when they give to the poor. So here it is. Let me put it up on the screen. This will be our last question for today. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So he encourages generosity. So the answer is be generous where you can, and know that if you it's okay. If you give generously, God's going to give back to you. Given it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It says, um, bountifully will also um, reap bountifully, so let each give as he purposes in his heart. And this is what you give, New Era. You give as you purpose in your heart to give. You honestly want to be generous. You want to live generously. You want to tip generously. Uh, you, you want people to be blessed. You want to be a blessing to people wherever you can go. And if, um, but, but you, you purpose in your heart. It's not a tithe anymore. It's not a mandatory tithe. The pastors that teach that, stop it. Um, and it says not grudgingly or necessity. So you feel like, well, I got to give the money, this money to the poor and uh, I could go out and buy, what? You just go out and buy whatever then. Not grudgingly or necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. It means we ought to really, really love to be able to give and God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have abundance for every good work. That God would continue to give you abundance for every good work. That's the idea. And that's the idea why God would say, that he wants us to give and have it given uh, and give back to us uh, because he wants us to continue to give. And so give and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. And when you're generous, God's generous back to you. When you become a channel, God uses you as a channel. This has nothing to do with greed. It has nothing to do with wanting to be rich. It has everything to do with being generous with whatever you have. And that looks different for different people. All right. So thank you, New Era, for that question. I really do appreciate it. Uh, we'll take a follow-up on that next week if we need to, all right? Uh, but hope you guys are blessed by the time that we spend here today, uh, that you find yourself continuing to walk close with Christ. Walk in the, the Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. All right? Love you guys. God bless you. Uh, we got a service in about an hour. We're going to be looking at Stephen's defense as uh, he defends um, and condemns the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. Good passage. We'll be talking about the, some of the promises of God and the way that God's promises work as, as we look at the, his defense and talking about that. So God bless you guys. For those who are going to join us in about an hour, we'll see you there, 6 o'clock East Campus, and that's also online, and then 7.15 at our West Campus. Both will be live. All right? What is today? Today's Saturday. No West Campus tonight, okay? 6 o'clock East Campus, and then uh, three services tomorrow, two on the East Campus, one on the West. All right, God bless you guys. I'm out. We'll see you later.